0: This morning, we are going to look at three gifts for the suffering Christian. Three gifts for the suffering Christian. The reality is, as we look uh, back over this year, this being the last Sunday in this year, some of you have rejoiced, and we have rejoiced with you. Tremendous things have happened in your life, things that have brought you joy, things that have brought you uh, satisfaction, uh, answers to prayer and what a privilege it has been to rejoice with you through those things and then with others of you this has been the toughest year of your life you have gone through things that if a year ago someone had said this is what you will face in the next 12 months you would have collapsed under the weight and pressure of that yet God has uh, Giving you grace enough that you sit here today worshiping him in light of and sometimes in spite of everything you've experienced. And so what is it that enables you to do that? Uh, this morning we're going to discover three gifts for you as you suffer, three gifts for the suffering Christian. And as we look at those, we are going to do something that probably until a few years ago wouldn't have been very familiar to you. Uh, it was uh, a years ago only uh, good photographers knew about zoom lenses and panoramics and that kind of thing. But with the uh, advent of Smartphones and everybody now carrying cameras, we all know about the panoramic view and we know about the zoom lens. And in this passage, in verses one and two, Paul gives a panoramic view and then he zooms in on the very specific time of suffering in our lives. So let's look at the panoramic view uh, that James has read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this panoramic view, Paul paints a picture for us of our past, our present, and our future. All in two verses. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first gift for the suffering Christian is peace. You can have peace even while you suffer. You can have peace even while life is unraveling. Why? Or how? Uh, Paul says we have been justified. Uh, What does that mean? These are some heady theological terms. And what does it mean to be justified? Uh, A simple way of explaining the word justified is just as if you had never sinned to be declared righteous. You see, if you have come to God, you have done so through Jesus Christ. You have not done so through anything you could do. You have done so through Christ. And if you have come to God, you had to admit you were a sinner. You had to own your sin. You had to realize that your sin was separating you from a holy God. And only God could breach the gap between you and your sinfulness and God and his holiness. And he did that. uh, Verse 1 says, "...through our Lord Jesus Christ." There's a little tiny word, uh, three letters in the Greek that means through, and sometimes there's another word that's also in this passage that means by. This word through means by means of. Meaning that Jesus Christ is the means of your justification. He is the reason and the means by which you were justified. You say, Jerry, what do you mean when Jesus died on the cross, that sacrifice was for your sins and for mine? And when you trust Christ as your Savior, when you receive his forgiveness for your sins, you are Declared righteous, you were justified, and that gives you peace. Why does it give you peace? Because it means you are accepted by God. The moment you are saved, the moment you are born again, you are accepted by God, and you may never worry or fear again that God will not accept you. From that moment on, you are accepted by him. You are received by him. How can that be? How can that be? Some people struggle with this because of the sins you commit after coming to Christ. Do those sins separate you from the love of God? No, they don't. You are accepted by God from the moment of your conversion because when you are saved, the blood of Christ is applied to your life. And from that moment on, God looks at you and he sees only his son, Jesus Christ. And you're accepted you are at peace. You don't have to fight for that. There's nothing you could do to gain it. It is a free gift of God through the death of his son Jesus on your behalf. That's our past. Whenever you came to Christ, mark it down. It's a key moment in your life, and some of you have yet to experience it. And you sit here this morning lost in your sins, and you can this morning experience the new birth, the new beginning of a brand new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can start all over again uh, and give your life to Christ today. And when you do, God will justify you, declare you righteous, you will be accepted by him. Not only are you justified, that's past. In this panoramic view, we see the present. We are being sanctified. Look at this. Through him, that tiny word appears again. Through, By means of Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have also obtained access by grace into this faith in which we stand. The first gift for the suffering Christian is peace. The second gift for the suffering Christian is grace. We have peace because we're accepted by God and we have grace in order for us to be sanctified. What does that big word mean? It means to become more and more like Jesus Christ. When we are sanctified, we become more and more like him, and that's, this is where the rubber meets the road. All right, we have several new believers in this room right now. You've come to Christ over the past few weeks, several in the service earlier who come to Christ over the past few weeks, and when you do that, there are all kinds of questions you have. Uh, can I do this can I not do this how do I say no to sin and yes to God how do I walk by the spirit and not by the flesh what about all of these temptations I face and what about all of what about this situation what about uh, this circumstance in my life how do I navigate it what do I do here what do I do there all of these questions I love hanging out with new Christians because they have so many questions about these things they're hungry to do life God's way and they have all these questions recently I sat with a new believer from the church he's just given his life to Christ uh, through uh, a few months ago and we were talking he knows Hannah our daughter he asked about her what is Hannah doing I said Hannah's a student at North Greenville uh, University what she plan to do I said she's studying intercultural studies plans to be a missionary uh, she'll she'll go find her mission field and and she'll get to work and he said what is a mission field and uh, and I realized he had no clue what I just said. Didn't have a clue. All of this uh, kind of jargon that we're used to, this kind of religious talk, he didn't have a clue about. I could just imagine him leaving my office, a little confused about a mission field, driving down the road, trying to find some field or something. I mean, didn't have a clue. New believers experience this sanctification is becoming more and more like christ and so what happens we receive this gift called grace i want you to hear me on this because some of you have known christ for years and you've never gotten this in your life and you come to church every sunday and you don't have a clue i want you to hear me some of you believe that the only way you could be saved was to trust christ as your savior and there was nothing you could do to deserve that or earn that, and you're right. But you are convinced that the only way to stay that way is for you to be good. You are convinced that not only are you, are you respond or God was responsible for your salvation, but you're responsible for your sanctification and. You've made a list. And if you can keep that list, you feel good about yourself. And if you can't keep that list, you don't. And that's how you live. You don't need God every day. Don't pray because you've got a list. When it's clear here, through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand now by grace. We are saved then by grace. We stand now by grace. The same grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you. You can no more earn your sanctification than you can earn your salvation. You say, well, Jerry doesn't mean I don't do anything. No, it just means that the impetus is the grace of God, and you are the one who responds to it, not the opposite. God, by his grace, leads you. Well, practically, how does this happen? Here it says we have access. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here is the reality. You can come into the presence of God anytime, anywhere, for any reason, and find grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. You can come close to God. In our earlier service, we had a large number of people this morning. Church before this one was Catholic. They have stepped out of Catholicism into worship here. No buffer in between those two. And one of the most significant challenges they face is this: Can I talk to God? Just me and Him? Doesn't somebody have to be between us? Isn't there someone holier than me who has a more direct line to Him than I do? No. No, you have access any time. Anytime you want, you can go into his presence. Anytime you want, you can call out to him. And that's how we live this life. He gives us the grace to say yes to him and no to sin and to say no to temptation. He was tempted in every way like you are, yet without sin. And so we throw ourselves at him every single day. We recognize there's absolutely no way we can live this life unless he lives it through us. So in this panoramic view, we are justified, which gives us peace. We have grace, which sanctifies us. But Paul doesn't stop there in these two verses. He looks future, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God All right, so we've got our past, we're justified, we have peace. We've got our present, and we have grace. And then there's this future, and it talks about glory. And that's a word that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So let me see if I can help us understand it. For as long as there will be Chicago Bulls, there will never be another player to wear what number? 23. Right? Why? Why? Michael Jordan. That's right, Ian. Michael Jordan wore that number. If another player for the Bulls insisted on wearing 23, what would they do to him? They'd laugh him out. Why? Because he would be stealing Michael Jordan's what? His glory. He would be stealing... Michael Jordan's glory. He doesn't deserve to wear number 23. The glory of God is his honor, his essence, his holiness, his character. How many of you want to suit up and say, I deserve to wear that. None of us. None of us said, how significant is his glory? Moses went on the mountain had a conversation with God, wanted to see God's face. God said, no way, Moses. You can't look on me and live. I'll show you my back. And, and so Moses only saw the back of God comes down off the mountain. And when he comes off the mountain, the glory of God is so radiant on Moses' face that the people cannot look at him. God's glory. How about Isaiah? Isaiah 1 through 5, Isaiah is pronouncing woes against all the people of Israel. Woe to you, he says. Woe to you. Five, six different times in those chapters, Isaiah says, woe to you. In Isaiah chapter 6, God shows up, and Isaiah's uh, friend, Uzziah the king, he had been king for 50 years almost in Israel, he dies. And Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Well, everybody reading what Isaiah writes, number one, is not going to believe him because they know you can't look on God and live, but they're going to say, All right, tell me what you saw. Isaiah, I don't believe a word you're saying, but tell me what you saw. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we all wait, okay, what was it, Isaiah? What did you see? And the train of his robe filled the temple. What? Isaiah, you're going to describe your vision of the glory of God and all you see is the hem of his garment. All you can see is what's left of the hem of his garment and the hem of his garment fills the entire temple, yes, because God is so glorious and uh, though the temple is so magnificent that just the hem of his garment can fill it. Isaiah only saw the hem of his garment. What did that do to him? When he saw the hem of his garment and the glory of God and the cherubim singing, holy, 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 all of a sudden, all the woe to you, to you, to you, to you and chapters 1 through 5 are gone. And the mirror comes down in front of Isaiah. And what does he say? Woe is who? Me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he says, my eyes have seen the glory of the, uh, of, the, of the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. It's amazing how a picture of the glory of God causes you to be so less critical about the person who's sitting down the road from you. and so clear and keen on your own sin and your need for Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say to you this morning, if you sit here still and you are easily critical of everybody around you and angry and bitter at everybody, you've still not seen God. We've sung songs and you haven't gotten there. We've prayed and you're where you were, or worse off than when you came in. Because once you get a glimpse of his glory, nothing else can capture. Your attention, not even the sin of the person who offended you. Isaiah's woes for the nation of Israel stop and they halt. And he says, woe is me. Well, what does Paul say here? He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One day, are you ready for this? Listen, you will see his glory and it won't kill you. One day you will see his radiant face and you will not die from his glory. And that gives us hope. The three gifts for the suffering Christian, peace, you are accepted by God, grace, you can live this life out Hope one day you will see him face to face. And when you do, you won't shrink back. You'll worship. You will exalt him. Can I say to those of you in the room who've lost a loved one, they've gone through past, present, They're in the future that we wait for. Oh, they see the glory of the Lord. They worship him. They see him as they've never seen him before. You say, Jerry, how does that look? Many of you were here last Sunday night. Last Sunday night, two different times, this place was packed with people. And here's how we ended. That great Christmas carol. Oh, holy night. All of us with candles, the choir singing, the voices from all of the people fill in both filling this room singing. And when those candles went up, it was unbelievable. The presence, peace of God in this room. Tiny, little foretaste. Of glory, tiny taste of glory. That's the panoramic view that we have. Verse three. Paul says, "Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings." How do you? rejoice in sufferings. To clarify, to rejoice in sufferings doesn't mean we glibly jump up and down, glad that life is hard. No. Glad that we're going through what we're going through. No. The very next word gives us an idea that rejoicing in our sufferings has less to do with feelings and more to do with facts. Knowing, Paul says, knowing what? That suffering produces endurance. This is the close-up view. The, the camera lens is zooming in. Suffering produces endurance. Uh, that word endurance means to stay under. The trial comes And you stay put under the trial. That has been my prayer for so many of you this year. I I see you sitting here. And I have prayed and prayed and prayed. God, help them to stay under. To stay put under the pain. Help them to stay put under the trial. May their faith, though it may rock and reel and waver, stay the course. Suffering produces endurance. To stay under the trial. Endurance produces character. Some of your translations render it proven character. It means consistent behavior Over a period of time. Consistent behavior over a period of time. When I consider where you've been this year, I look back and see John and Kelsey and the horrific loss they experienced in February of this year of of Weston. Very next Sunday, they were right there worshiping. Here they sit. They still worship. They have no idea how many people glean faith from their example. And if you talk to them, they'll tell you on more days than not, they feel weak, inept, inept. Yet great grace and strength flows from them to us. Greg and Marla sit here this morning. In the early service, I looked at Janet Spake, who was wearing a wig. She's lost her hair, but she hasn't lost her faith. I looked at Brenda Tate, who sat to my right. Brenda has on more than one occasion battled cancer in her mouth. She's never smoked. She's never used tobacco. Seems strange. Seems to come out of left field. But for year after year, she has faithfully loved God through that. She's quiet. You you would never think that people watch her and grow from her faith. But people do. Beverly Hollifield, who again has cancer, who has worked every day. She works with senior adults in, in a facility, and she now is in a wheelchair at work. And she said they love her. She directs, uh, I think, nursing for that facility. She rolls up and down the halls. And now, it's, she says on their level, Rejoicing in suffering isn't jumping up and down. It's continuing to do the right thing when you don't feel like it. Did you hear that? It's continuing to do the right thing when you don't feel like it. That's how we rejoice. It's a sacrifice of praise to God. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. This hope is a confident expectation that it will be better than this. There is the glory of God that we long to see, and one day will. This is not what God intended it to be. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So here's the zoom lens. The love of God poured into our hearts. I love words, so I'll look this one up. What does it mean to be poured into our hearts? And I found three different references. There are many, but I found three that I want to share with you from the New Testament. Same word. Matthew nine seventeen. Jesus is teaching, and he says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out. And the wineskins are ruined, uh, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Uh, The word poured out. There, the bursting of these wineskins. That's the picture of God pouring his love into you. Through the Holy Spirit. All right? Second time this word appears. John 2, verse 15. Jesus is angry. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, the money changers, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their table. That's the second time it occurs, this this, uh, dramatic pouring out is what Paul is alluding to here. He's grabbed this word, which means to burst forth, or to burst upon, to pour out. The third reference is gross, all right? It's nasty, but it's there. Acts one eighteen. there's a man who acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. That's gross, but that's the word, meaning unable to be contained, unable to be contained. Maybe you've experienced this. I have. Uh, if you've ever been to a restaurant and your waiter or waitress gets carried away, all right, so I like coffee and like Gamecocks, they won yesterday, rough year, good finish. All right, so, so and, and your waiter comes and they begin to pour, right? And they're just talking, and they're not paying any attention, and they just keep pouring. And there you sit, and all of a sudden, there it goes. Pour it over. Dave's not here today, so I can do whatever with this stage and get by with it. That's the picture. That's what God longs to do. Pour out his love until it's just filling every corner of your life. How? Through the Spirit. It's been kind of a crazy year, as many of you know, for Wendy and me too with Trent and uh, all his surgery stuff. And so a week ago Monday, we were headed to Chapel Hill. Um, We tried to get the appointment when he was in school, but we were told that, that uh, his doctor, who was our third doctor in six months, was leaving. And so we needed one more appointment with her, and we were so disappointed to learn we have to get now doctor number four to schedule his 11th surgery. And so we're driving down the road, and we stopped and had a real godly breakfast at Chick-fil-A in Morganton. And he falls asleep, and I'm going to take that time to pray. And God did something that I don't understand, that I do not deserve. Trent is sleeping. I open my mouth to begin to pray and there are no words only tears and in that little jeep of mine God for whatever reason decided that he would super infuse it with his love so much so that for the next hour and a half As I was driving down the road, I wept. I just wept. There were no words. I had nothing to say. Just a hot bath of tears coming down my face. I could have driven to California. California. If God, in his grace, wanted to pour out his love, oh me, for that great a distance. Completely undeserving. Nothing to call that down. No magical formula. No, it's just Holy Spirit in me who wants to do that, who wants to pour out his love on me. And so for that hour and a half, I'm just washed in his love. There's no music playing. There's no one speaking. It's just me and Trent's asleep. And the love of God is just being poured out all over me for no apparent reason at all, except for four weeks now we've said he's a daddy who loves us like that. what oh the deep deep love of the father the only way that you will rejoice in your suffering the only way you will is with this panoramic view oh this is who i was this is what jesus did And I did not deserve that. This is who I am. And this is what he is doing. And I sure don't deserve this. Oh, this is who I will be. And this is who I will see. And I sure don't deserve that. In light of that, where I am now, God, I'm not who I once was. I'm not who I will be, but where I am now, I rejoice. In what? That I'm not who I once was, and that I'm not who I will be. I rejoice. In pain, I rejoice that I'm not who I once was, and I'm not who I will be. I rejoice. What a gift, amen? I'm speaking to somebody in the room, more than one, who's never received this gift. It's a few days after Christmas, and it could be the best Christmas of your life. You come to the end of yourself and say, I'm a sinner. God, I've casting myself in you right now. I realize I'm a sinner and I need you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me. I give my sinful self to you now. If God is nudging you to do that. You can do it where you're standing or sitting. You can do it. Uh, walk down this aisle and share that and give your life to Christ. Be born again then there are others of you you're suffering it is our privilege to suffer with you and to rejoice not in your suffering but in our Savior in our Savior